1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For since in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who puts all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will be subject will be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead, if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. But someone will say, How are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There is one kind of flesh of man, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. 
so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There's a natural body and there's a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made, made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I guess it's my turn. <laughs> All right, so I uh, will dismiss the Calvary cadets to their class. Thank you, Nessia, for that recitation of the chapter. We will uh, look at the passage, the last part of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, at uh, the end of the passage that Nessia just recited for us. And uh, to kind of help us think about this chapter a little bit, it's good to remember that uh, we have an enemy in this world, and he's spoken of in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. It says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So Satan is described in this passage as a roaring lion. I put a picture in my PowerPoint to remind us how fierce an enemy a lion is. It says that he wants to devour us, and we need to understand that there are things Satan cannot do. He cannot take away our salvation. He cannot take away our salvation. Once we have believed the gospel, 
Once we have put our faith in the Lord Jesus and what he did for us on the cross, we have a home in heaven. And that home in heaven cannot be taken away from us. And that is the victory that overcomes the world. We have experienced the victory because we are no longer subject to death, to eternal death, but are instead on our sure and firm way to heaven. But still we are told that Satan is an enemy that wants to devour us. How does he devour, uh, devour us? Well, he can destroy what we might call the victorious Christian life. The victorious Christian life is living in view of the victory that we have experienced, living in view in heaven, knowing that I'm going to heaven, and that completely changes my life. I don't have to worry about anything anymore, right? Because that's where my home is, in heaven, in case all that God wants me to do is love him and love others and live my life in, uh, in a way that pleases him and, and blesses others. And that's not so hard if I remember that my home is in heaven, if I remember that Jesus did it all. There's nothing I need to do. I'm, I'm, I'm heading straight there. It might happen today that I will die and uh, you know, I will lose my life and I'll go to heaven or the Lord might come down, we'll look at that passage and call me to heaven today. Or it might happen in 30, 40 years. I don't know when, but I know where I'm going. That Satan doesn't want me to live in such a manner. Satan wants me to be afraid, to be discouraged, to be distracted, to not live for God, to not live for others, to just think about myself. And that would be what we would call being devoured by Satan. He took away my victorious Christian life. Cannot take away my victory, but he can take away my living victorious, living in view of that victory. In the passage we looked at in First Peter, he did it through, uh, through sufferings. Perhaps it was persecution that came upon the, the believers and they were just so bothered by what was happening to them. They were losing their possessions. They were being uh, insulted, beaten up, maybe thrown in jail. Some of them may have been losing their lives and they were just so discouraged by that that they were losing view of heaven. The fact that they're headed to be with God in heaven. In 1 Corinthians, the danger is a little bit more subtle. It is that of false doctrine. We see it in 1 Corinthians 15, 12. Paul says, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? It seems to me that the Corinthian church was a very liberal church. You know, they were permissive of people with different uh, lifestyles um, and um, apparently permissive also of different doctrines. We saw there were maybe some issues with how the church meetings were being conducted. And apparently some were standing up in the meetings and saying things like, there is no resurrection of the dead. Right? Once our body dies, it's dead forever. Now, I don't know what else they said. Maybe they said, well, you know, it doesn't mean we won't go to heaven. It just means we won't have a body. I, I don't know how they try to fit the lack of the resurrection, the bodily resurrection from the dead with the rest of scriptures. But uh, this false teaching was coming in and Paul recognized how dangerous it was and the fact it was going to discourage the believers take away the victorious Christian life 
And he is trying to nip this false teaching in the bud. And that is what 1 Corinthians 15, it's really a refutation of this false teaching that there is no resurrection of the dead. The truth is the dead will rise again, right? And we'll see that again in this passage as we've seen it uh, for the previous uh, four weeks. Just to bring us to where we are in this masterpiece of the defense of the resurrection of the dead, uh, let's, let's uh, uh, review what it is that Paul has already shown us in this chapter. First of all, he pointed out that Christ's resurrection was attended by many witnesses. Jesus really rose from the dead. How do we know? People saw him after he rose from the dead. There were eyewitnesses of his resurrection, including at some point over 500 brethren at the same time seeing the risen Lord. Uh, he came and he, and he talked with his disciples. He ate with his disciples. They saw him eating food. And uh, Paul says, and last of all, as one born out of due time, Christ appeared to him himself. So Paul also was an eyewitness of the risen Lord. He knew that Jesus rose from the dead. Why? Because he saw him, right, after his resurrection. So that's the first argument that he has against the idea that there is no resurrection of the dead. Christ was dead and Christ rose from the dead. How can you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Second, he points out that the resurrection of Christ is an essential part of the gospel, right? Or the good news of salvation. If you take away the resurrection from the dead, we have no gospel. The gospel is that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again according to the scriptures. If you take away the resurrection of Christ, there is no gospel. And if there is no gospel, there is no salvation. Right? That is how serious this false teaching was. It was taking away the gospel and uh, the salvation of people. Third, Paul uh, points out that Christ's resurrection is an evidence of our own resurrection. He uses the term first fruits. I have a cherry tree, and uh, I love cherries. But strangely enough, my cherry trees doesn't always produce fruit. And... Uh, it may have to do with how many you know, cold nights there were or something complicated like that. It may have to do with the fact that there's uh, not enough cherry trees in my neighborhood or not enough bees cross-pollinating. I don't know all the reasons, but uh, I, I look for that first fruit because if I see a fruit forming, I know, yes, I will have cherries this year. And usually it'll be a lot of cherries. It won't just be a single one. So the first one that comes, the first fruit is an indication of more to come. And Christ's resurrection being risen from the dead is the first fruit. It shows me that I will also rise from the dead. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, there's no reason for confidence that I will rise from the dead. He is the first fruits. Fourth, uh, Paul points out that our resurrection, so now we're talking about the fact that we will rise again because Jesus rose from the dead, because there is a resurrection of the dead, our resurrection is an essential motivation to living the Christian life. Right? He says, if the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. What's the point of self-sacrifice if there is no resurrection of the dead? The Christian life is, is a supernatural life. You cannot live it unless you are 
expecting heaven and you know that one day you'll be with God in heaven and you're living for that future. If you don't have that in view, you cannot live the Christian life, is what Paul is saying. Fifth, and that was last week as Michael went over it, um, Paul points out, so this is an issue, and probably this was the very root of the argument that um, there is no resurrection of the dead, is simply they didn't believe it was possible. Look, this person died. Look at their body rotting in the grave. How is it possible that this person can come to life? And with what body are we going to have a bunch of, you know, half decomposed bodies walking around in heaven? Impossible, right? And what he pointed out uh, in the previous section is the same God who's able to take a seed that falls to the ground and dies, as we understand it, can become this you know, beautiful tree, right? God gives it a body as he pleases. In the same way, even though our body might die, might go and rot in the grave, God will give us a new body as he pleases. And in fact, he goes on to say, it's going to be the same body as the Lord Jesus had, right? He's going to give us a different kind of body. We are sown in incorruption, we are raised in, sorry, we are sown in corruption, we are raised in incorruption. We are sown in dishonor, we are raised in glory. We are sown in, uh, in weakness, we are raised in power. We are sown a natural body, we are raised a spiritual body. It will be a new kind of body that we will have. Just the same way that God can take a seed and make a beautiful tree out of it, God can take my dead body as the dust returns to dust and make out of it a body like the body of the Lord Jesus. A perfect body prepared for heaven. Okay, that brings us to today. That was the review of the past. And, uh, and what we'll see today, I'll, I'll go section by section. Paul will add one more argument, and then he'll make a number of conclusions uh, to kind of wrap up the chapter. Okay, so the additional argument he is making here for the resurrection of the dead is in verse 15, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 15. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. What Paul is saying here is that this body is not good enough for heaven, right? If we somehow preached a gospel to fish, and we told fish, one day you will live on land. The fish will have to say, well, God is ha will have to do something about this body of mine. Because the body I have is not fitted for land. Right? In the same way, the fact that we are going to be in heaven means we need different bodies. God will have to do something with this. Because this is not fitted for heaven. Right? And he continues on with this. Okay. Um, let, me, let me go ahead and finish this verse. It says, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. So just some, some thoughts. What is it about this body that, that uh, is not fitted for heaven? Um, in Exodus 33, verse 20, God says this to Moses. Moses wanted to see God. He said to God, Show me your glory. And God answers and says to him, you cannot 
see my face. For no man shall see me and live. Right? So Moses, I know you want to see me, but you're not able to. Right? No man can see me in my full glory and survive the experience, is what he's telling him. Unless we think that's just an Old Testament teaching. I have a verse in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 6.16, speaking of God, who alone has immortality, dwelling in, in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So here again we have God, which was saying, no man has seen, nor can see. Why not? Again, because we lack the proper body that can handle the glory of God. Right? That's why we cannot see God face to face. If God were to appear in all his glory in our midst, these bodies will not survive the experience. And yet we are told this, as the fish were told in my example, that they would live on land. This is what we're told about our future. This is in Revelation 22 and verse 3. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Right? Speaking of us being in heaven and serving God, it adds, they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp, no light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Well, in verse 4 of this chapter, he tells me that I will see God face to face. How is that possible? We just had the verses saying, no man can see me and live. He dwells in unapproachable night that no man can see and survive. And yet I am told that I will see the face of God in heaven. Jesus gives us perhaps the explanation for that in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So it says the fact that we are the children of God. We are the children of God right now. Okay? But it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, meaning my body has not yet changed. You're seeing me in my you know, pre-heavenly form. Right? How you wish it was otherwise. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, that is, when Jesus comes back, we shall be like him. The same thing that Paul said in 1 Corinthians. Our body will become like his glorious body. And then he explains it, for we shall see him as he is. Meaning, there is no other way we could see Jesus as Jesus really is with these bodies. We need a new kind of body, okay? Which means I, 
You know, the resurrection of the dead is necessary. It's to be expected that God will give us a different kind of body. Don't expect God to raise a dead, rotting body and end up with the same thing he started with, right? We need something better. And so, you know, what's the big deal if this body dies? Because this body will do me no good in heaven. I need a new kind of body, okay? Again, just Paul's final argument in this chapter to the resurrection of the body. We need a new kind of body, and so what if we die? We need a new body anyway for heaven. It's not an argument against the resurrection of the dead that my body is rotting in the ground. Dust is returning to dust. Something much better is coming. Amen? Amen. Okay. Now Paul will make uh, some new information available to us. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Now, when Paul says this is a mystery, he doesn't mean that it's difficult to understand. It means it's a previously unrevealed truth. The resurrection is not a mystery. The Old Testament is very clear that there will be a resurrection. What the Old Testament doesn't talk about is the rapture, the fact that there will be people who will change into their glorified bodies without dying. I may never die. I may never lie in the grave, but this body must be changed if I'm going to heaven. I can't go to heaven in this body. And that's what Paul is saying here. That's the conclusion. We have a similar passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. It seems that the Thessalonians had some similar issues, maybe some false teaching regarding the resurrection of the dead. And so Paul says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So we don't have to cry, we don't have to be so sad when a believer dies, because we're not going to be separated from them forever. It's just a temporary separation. Okay, I won't see them for the next few years, but I'll see them again in heaven, is really what he's saying. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, again the resurrection, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Those who have fallen asleep, meaning those who died, Jesus will bring back from the dead. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in heaven. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. So there's going to be two kinds of, of people, of believers, when Jesus comes back. There'll be some that are in the grave and some that are not in the grave. They both end in the same place. They both end up with the Lord, which means those of us who've never died 
will have to experience the same change of body, right? That should be a, a natural corollary uh, of, of that truth. Now, the last verse there, therefore comfort one another with this word. So this is, it can be a discouragement when we're separated from loved ones, or perhaps when we ourselves are at the threshold of death, and God doesn't want us to be discouraged. Remember, that's what Satan is trying to achieve. Satan is trying to get our eyes off heaven and look at our troubles and be discouraged and miss out on the blessing this life can be by keeping our eyes on the Lord. And so he says, encourage one another. Remember where you're going. Remember where these loved ones who perished, who died, uh, are. They're with the Lord. And we will meet them when the Lord comes. Right. Okay. Paul continues in verse 54 of 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 15 saying, so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? When uh, I took my daughters to the airport a few weeks ago, uh, they had an opportunity to go down to Los Angeles for a, a bar mitzvah, a friend of the family. Uh, I was looking at one of the screens and there was a basketball game going on. I, I'm not uh, you know, a person who watches TV very much, so you know, okay, oh, look at that, a basketball game. What I didn't realize at the time is I was watching history. Uh, you wanna show the slide? I was uh, watching a team called uh, UMBC <coughs> playing against, that's the, the, the yellow, uh, playing against a team called Virginia. And uh, UMBC uh, did history, uh, made history on that day. They were a, what you called a 16 seed team in, uh, in the uh, basketball college finals or playoffs. I don't know if you're familiar with, it's sometimes called March Madness. And that's basically, they, they pick the top 64 basketball teams in college, and they get them to play one another in what you call uh, elimination or first, first elimination play. So each team plays another team, and uh, when they win, they move up. So it starts with 64 best team, it'll end up with one, the best team in, in college basketball, right? And uh, this tournament started in 1939, 1939, so something like 80 years, this has been going on. And what they would do is to kind of help make things interested and make interesting, make sure really the best teams are playing at the end, they start by facing the best teams with the worst teams, right, makes sense? Ideally, that's an easy win, right, for the best teams. And uh, the you know, worst team gets knocked out, and at the end, hopefully you have the two best teams playing each other, and that's the final, everybody wants to see it, and you see who's really the best. What UMBC did is they were 
you know, one of the last teams, they were ranked 16. So they divide them into four groups. In each group you have the worst, which is the number 16. So if you divide 64 by four, you have 16. So the worst team in that group, that's the ranked 16, will play the number one team, okay? And uh, for 80 years, the worst teams played the best teams. And every time, the worst teams lost. This year, for the first time, this team called UMBC, University of Maryland, Baltimore County, stunned the sports world by pulling off the most surprising upset in college basketball history. Trouncing Virginia 74 to 54 on Friday night to become the first number 16 seed ever to beat a number one seed in the men's NCAA tournament. So they did history. They could have just won by one point. Would have been history. They beat them by 20 points, which is very unusual. Actually, they have these things, uh, I don't know, these betting things, and you could bet the odds. And the odds were that Virginia was going to beat them by 20 and a half points. So if you wanted to bet against Virginia, you just had to say they're not going to beat them by 20 and a half points. They'll just beat them by 19 points. You would have won the bet. And it completely flipped. UMBC beat them by 20 points. And uh, not only that is amazing, Virginia wasn't just ranked number one for that group. They were ranked number one overall. They were expected to win the whole thing. And they lost by 20 points. So yeah, that's the next picture I was going to show you. Was UMBC happy? They were happy, <laughs> right? And, uh, and I think what Paul is trying to do in this passage, as we see him you know, say these kind of words, right? Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? It's kind of this victory dance, if you would, that, uh, that you see UMBC doing. So I thought it's worth thinking about how great is this victory we have over death, we, we shouldn't be any less happy than those people over there, right? Uh, so just to think about it, uh, how, how much greater is our victory over death than UMBC's victory over Virginia? First of all, there's much more at stake. You to go to the next picture, right? UMBC, that's just a game, just, just a game. And it wasn't even the final game. As it turned out, UMBC did not win all the games. They just won that game, right? So it wasn't, you know, you know yes, they can put it under their, their belt that they beat the best team, right? That's about all they can say. Yeah, so I mean, it'll make you happy. I'm sure some of them, you know, will keep those T-shirts on the wall the for the rest of their lives. You know, it was a great victory. I'll give them that, right? But it was just a game. Right? At the end of the day, they didn't really help anybody. Right? When we're talking about death, we're talking about the worst affliction of mankind. Right? There is nothing worse than death. You might be very sick. You may be a lot of bad things happen to you. As long as you're not dead, you're doing better than those people. Right? I, uh, we're, we're missing um, one, of, one of our our friends here that just had a surgery, and uh, we, uh, you know, I, I know, sometimes I ask him how he's doing, and he says, I'm here, right? 
He's like, I'm pleased to say, yes, I, I have a lot of medical issues, I know. But I'm here, I made it, I'm walking, I'm talking. Right? So I'm, I'm doing okay. Right? That's, that's how serious the victory over death is. It is the worst affliction of mankind that we're being faced with. Uh, second, it's a much greater challenge. Right? So I'll grant you, uh, UMBC were facing a challenge. They were facing the best team in college basketball as far as rankings were concerned, right? That team, I think, had uh, like a 32 to two record this year, which means they beat, they won 32 out of 34 games this year. So the odds are, are against you, granted. You're going against a team that's good, a team that has odds are good. What are the odds against death? Zero, a billion people dead, no one living, right? To demonstrate victory over death. Now we know there's an exception in the Lord Jesus, right? Here's one who's risen victoriously over death, but not before that point, right? Before that point, you know, nobody, now there were a couple of people taken to heaven without dying, so they kind of escaped it, they didn't defeat it, right? There were a few people who came back to life to just die again, they didn't win. Second round, death had them, right? So, so the record of death is much better than the record of Virginia. So we have a much greater opponent here, much greater challenge. And yet, we also have a much more complete victory. So maybe there's another, another picture. But yeah, UMBC, they did beat Virginia by 20 points. But uh, next time, next time Virginia might beat them, right? The last, the last uh, part of the story may not have been written. Not so with us. When we receive a new body, when we rise from the dead, death will have no more power over us, right? There's nothing, nothing that death can do to touch us right after that point. It'll be a complete and final victory. It uses the word swallowed up. Death is swallowed up in victory. Uh, you know, they, being swallowed up it seems to be the, the ultimate end of something, right? Once somebody eats you, you're gone. <laughs> Death is swallowed up in victory. Nothing left, no power. Death will have no power over us when that day comes after we go through that transformation. A complete and utter defeat of death, a complete victory for us. And so Paul is right to do his little victory dance and we would be right too, right? And that's part of the victorious Christian life is knowing that death is defeated. I have nothing to fear. I have a home in heaven prepared for me. Praise God. Okay, then uh, Paul uh, points out that this victory comes to us through the Lord Jesus. We didn't win it. UMBC could have said, by this hands it was done. I made the shot, right? We can't do the same. The victory was won for us by the Lord Jesus. That's what Paul says. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So first of all, what does it mean the sting of death is sin? Sin, death is not accidental. It's not that it just happens to be there that we die. Death is not designed by God. It was not God's intent that we will die. Death is the consequence 
of sin. It says in Romans 5.12, therefore just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and death, death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam was our representative before God and he rebelled against God, he sinned against God and God told him when he would do that that he will surely die. And that happened, Adam died as a result. And as Adam's descendants, we carry that same sin in our body. We are responsible for what Adam did because we are Adam's descendants. Besides which, we also sin all the time, right? So we demonstrate that we've inherited not just the consequence of Adam's sin, but the nature of Adam's sin is in us. And that is why death exists, right? Death is the consequence of this sin. Another uh, interpretation of the word, the sting of death is sin. Sin is what makes death so dreadful. If I had no sin to worry about, maybe death wouldn't be so bad. But Hebrews 9.27 tells us, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. When this body dies, I will appear before God and I will have to give account for my sins to God. And that's what makes death so bad. The fact I will have to face God in judgment for my sins after I die, right? That's the natural state of man. That is, uh, the sting of death is sin. Then he says, the strength of sin is the law. It appears from 2 Corinthians that some of the false teaching in Corinth involved the teaching that somehow the law, of Mo the law of Moses was the best way for us to be right with God. If you want to be right with God, keep the law, keep the law. And that's what many people believe today. If I want to be right with God, I need to be a good person. I need to do good things. And if I'm good enough, then that will get me to heaven. And Paul points out here that the strength of sin is the law. The law doesn't help me against sin. It lends sin its strength. Here's one view of that. Here's Romans 3, 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So what the law does, it doesn't help me against sin, it shows me my guilt. The more I look at the law of God, the more I'm willing to compare my life with the law of God, the more I realize that I am a sinner and I deserve God's judgment. And that's why Paul adds, therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law, is the knowledge of sin. I can never be justified. I can never become right with God because of the good things that I do. Because, why? Because I am a sinner. If, if I really was perfect, if I could really keep the law of God 24 seven, sure, bring on the law and I'll go to heaven. But that's not true about me. I cannot keep the law of God for one day, right? Much less for a hundred years or as long as I'm going to live. 
So the law does not help me get to heaven, is really the message there. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is it we're going to heaven? It is because of what Jesus did for us. What did Jesus do for us? Well, the beginning of the chapter told us what the gospel is. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The reason Jesus can give me eternal life, the reason Jesus can have a place in heaven for me is he took care of the sting of death, which is sin. He took, he took the poison, the thing that kills me is my sin. And Jesus took all of my sins and they were placed upon him as he died on the cross and there he fully paid for them. My past, my present, my future sins, all paid for, all gone. And that is why Jesus can take me to heaven because the sin problem has been settled. The proof of it is in the resurrection. We're told in Romans 4.25 that Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses, right? He was put on the cross because of the wrong things that I did, and he was raised up because of our justification. God raised Jesus up to show that we are justified, to show that Jesus accomplished the task of getting all of our sins paid for. And so we can, as Horatio Spafford said in his hymn, cry out, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Jesus took care of the sin problem, and that is how he can make a place in heaven for you and for me. Finally, Paul ends up in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The phrase, be uh, steadfast, immovable, made me think of uh, something I learned in martial arts. Yes, I too took karate. <laughs> I only lasted a few weeks. <laughs> but what I remember, the first thing they teach you the first day is how to stand, right? Because if I stand like this and somebody pushes me, I'm just gonna fall, right? I have no balance. But if I spread my feet, and you see those are the professionals over there. You know, if I spread my feet, I have a much better balance, right? And you can push me around and you know, I have a chance to stay on my feet, right? And that's what Paul is saying when he tells us uh, to be steadfast, immovable. Satan is going to try to knock you off your feet. It could be as he was doing uh, in the epistle that Peter wrote through some sort of persecution or personal affliction. It could be as it was in the case of the Corinthian here through some sort of false doctrine. And God doesn't want us to get knocked off our feet. He doesn't want us to lose the victorious Christian life. He wants us to be steadfast, be prepared, be grounded. You know, be in the word of God every day. Be speaking to the Lord every day. Surround yourself with the fellowship of the saints. Right? Those 
things we can do to be grounded and so that whenever something comes, a change in direction of the wind, we're not falling off our feet. We're standing steadfast, ready to the next rest of the verse, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He wants us to be busy for him, doing things for him. Right? Why? Because of the fact that we have a home in heaven. We're not living for the here and now. We're living for the future. He says this in Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me just close with a, uh, a poem written by City Star. I know I've read it before, but I like it and it fits with uh, the end of this message. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and for my mind would not depart. These were the two lines. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Anything else I do in this life is not gonna last, right? Me watching in you know, a basketball game might be fun. It's not going to have eternal value, right? Anything I do for Jesus has eternal value, right? That's what this verse is saying. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. All, only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me so, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the victory that you have given us in the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you have made a place for us in heaven. And everyone here who has put his trust in the Lord Jesus and his completed work on the cross for them is uh, going to be there with you for all of eternity. Lord, we ask that you might help us point our minds in that direction and, uh, and live for you, that our hearts may be there as well. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.